of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Thank you, Carrie. I'm going to pray with the pastor and then we'll get after it. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, just the, uh, the richness of the genealogy and that it is there for a reason and a purpose, Father. And um, it points to you. As we will hear this morning, Lord, we just ask that you would give Jonathan courage and boldness to continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel in grace and love, that we would have ears to hear it and hearts to receive it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. That young lady was impressive. So I don't know. I mean, there you go. I would argue she nailed every one of those names. So very good job. Very, 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 very good job. Um, You've probably noticed we're not in Romans 8. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be taking a pause um, in Romans 8. We're going to pick it back up in late January. And over these next couple of weeks, we're going to be touching on um, some sermon topics that we typically touch on this time of the year. Today, you're going to see Advent, Christmas Eve. Charles is going to preach for us the end of the year sermon. And then when we come around to the beginning of the year, what we're going to do is pause. We're going to look at prayer. We're going to pause and look at the sanctity of human life. And then we're going to pick back up in Romans chapter 8 and finish, and finish that up, okay? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to pose this question, ask this question, who is the king? Um, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to concentrate on the genealogy of Jesus Christ as it was given to us by Matthew. There's another genealogy given to us above the birth of Christ found in the Gospel of Luke. But today we're going to concentrate on Matthew chapter 1, these first 17 verses. So this past week, in various places all over the world, various times throughout the day, it happened. Star Wars, The Force Awakens, came out. It was hitting countries all over the world. Um, It came to America. It was in countries. People were going to see it. it. It was happening Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, was released upon the general, the general population. 
For many of us, it brought feelings of joy. Some of us may have been crying a little bit. Um, for other of us, it brought feelings of, do grown-ups really care about this? And so there was a lot of, there seemed to be a Facebook world divided. Some people who actually cared and some people who didn't really give, give a rip. Um, but for those of us who are excited about the release of this new film, it took us back into our, our minds, back to where it all began, which was Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And so in this film, the Jedi Knights are all but gone. It seems the Galactic Empire is going to have its way. It's going to defeat the Rebel Alliance, and this is just the way life is going to be. This is what we see in that very first movie, Episode 4. It looks like the Galactic Empire is going to end up ruling with an iron fist. Everyone's going to be subdued under its dictatorial rule, and it's just going to be the way life is. But what you have is the introduction of this young man, Mr. Luke Skywalker. And with the introduction of Luke Skywalker, what you have is a new hope because you actually have a new beginning. What looked like was going to be the course of history in the, the chronology and the history of these movies, that the Galactic Empire was going to have its way, it was going to rule, there was no hope. What you have was this insertion of hope, a new hope, the title of the movie tells us, because you have this one who's going to actually be able to come and start a new beginning. So if we were in some alternate galaxy far, far away where somehow Matthew, our gospel writer, could sit down and watch the original Star Wars trilogy, I think what we would find in Matthew is someone who would be a huge Star Wars fan because Matthew is a fan of new beginnings. See, Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy which seems like a strange way to start off a story. You go to Barnes & Noble, you go online, and you buy, buy books on e-readers. What you usually don't find when you start a brand new story is a genealogy. But this is the way Matthew decides to start his, his story. And what we need to know is that the idea behind the word genealogy, when you read the first couple words of the first phrase of the first verse of the first chapter of the first book, in the New Testament, the book of the genealogy is that the idea that is wrapped up with the word genealogy is the idea of genesis. It's the idea of beginning. So in choosing to start off his gospel with the phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew is making a reference back to the book of beginnings itself, the book of Genesis. So when you go back to the book of Genesis and you start in Genesis chapter 1, you start marching your way forward, what you see is the book of beginnings. Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God is the creator of all things. He made you and me, he made humanity, and he makes creation. When he is done creating, he steps back, he sees that everything that he was made, and he declares it to be very good. But then you can go to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that God's creation, along with humanity, has fallen into sin. The decision made by Adam and Eve to believe Satan's lie over and against God's truth ushers in incomprehensible brokenness, which has immediate consequences. And you don't have to look any further than Genesis chapter 4 to see just two stories of how far the sin that was just ushered in by Adam and Eve, distorts and destroys. A man named Cain kills his brother Abel out of anger. 
Another man named Lamech kills a young man for merely hitting him. And then Lamech turns and brags about this deed in a song to his two wives. And so when you read Genesis 1 and 2, as it's juxtaposed against Genesis chapter 3, and then you start forward from Genesis chapter 4 onward, what you see is just immediate destruction. Sin is destroying everything. Sin has destroyed everything. The relationship between humanity and God, destroyed. Creation, destroyed. We've been reading about this in in Romans chapter 8. Everything is dumped on its head. Everything is the way it ought not to be. And all of this happens just within the first four chapters of Genesis. And so when you're reading the first four chapters of Genesis, which is just so extremely foundational for the rest of the Bible, what you see is this, is that we are in immediate need for a new beginning. Immediately. We don't get any further than the first two chapters of Genesis to where we see sin ushered into the world and everything's dumped on its head and we begin to see this immediate longing. We, we need somebody. We need something that can usher us back to the place, back to the place where people have a right relationship with God, where creation is no longer suffering from the effects of sin. We need somebody who can bring us a new beginning. And this is exactly what we get. You turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, Moses writes this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So you see that Matthew's doing something here. So in Genesis chapter 5, we almost have the same phraseology. And what you get is this idea of Moses going, okay, we started off with Adam. We had a new beginning with him. It doesn't quite work. So let me give you some of the generations, some of the beginnings of what happened through the lineage of Adam. And you get this chapter 5, which is just nothing but a big, long genealogy, just like what we get here in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. So in the beginning, God created Adam in his own image, but Adam sinned, which defiled and deformed that image. Then Adam had children in his own likeness after his image, Genesis 5 says. And these children proved themselves to be sinners just like, just like Adam, just like Eve. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And throughout the book of Genesis, you find the repeated frame of these are the generations. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of this person. These are the generations of this person. You see it in the first 11 chapters of Genesis over and over again. You also see it dotted throughout the book of Genesis. You see it periodically throughout the Old Testament. This idea of here's a new beginning. Here's this generation of this person. Here's the generation of this person. Here's the beginning of this family line. Here's the beginning of this family line. And throughout the book of Genesis, as you see this repeated refrain of these are the generations, what you get is a picture that each time there is a new beginning, this new beginning isn't just, it's just not quite good enough. Every time someone pops up on the timeline of Old Testament history, we stand there and wonder, will this be the one who's going to be able to actually accomplish the longing and the desire of our heart? Is this going to be the one who can actually usher in redemption, restoration, restoring us back to the way it was in Genesis 1 and 2? So you see Adam who shows up on the screen, can't get it done. Genesis chapter 6, you have the generations of Noah. Noah looks like a bright spot almost immediately, but what happens? Can't get it done. Falls into sin. Then you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Looks like they're going to get it done, but they fail. They can't do it. 
Joseph is one of the more bright spots in the Old Testament, but even Joseph cannot restore what was lost in Genesis 1 and 2. You have Moses, cannot do it. Joshua, cannot do it. King David, King Solomon, the peak of the monarchy, the one of whom it is said, he is a man after God's own heart. And you're reading and you start to wonder, I think David might be able to do this, but then he sins. Commits adultery with Bathsheba, guilty of murder. Not going to do it. You have the judges, can't do it. The kings, can't do it. The prophets, can't do it. The priests, can't do it. Over and over again, you see these categories of people who keep shooting onto the screen, the radar of the Old Testament, like shooting stars. They come in bright, they come in strong, and your hopes begin to rise. I think this person's going to actually be able to usher in the necessary redemption that humanity needs, but it never happens. They always falter, they always fail, they always stumble, they always fall. And no matter where you read in the Old Testament, you meet sin, you bump into sinners, and you meet your need for a new beginning because none of these men were able to accomplish what we hoped what they would accomplish. See, the overwhelming picture of the Old Testament is that the generations of Adam in and of themselves, will not be able to accomplish the necessary redemption that is needed for humanity. They can't do it. What we need is someone who can usher in a new beginning which will finally be able to set right all that sin has distorted and destroyed. What we need is a better Adam. We need a new Adam. We need a second Adam. We need someone like Adam, but who is only infinitely better, who can actually do and reverse what Adam ushered into the world. See, Matthew understands the need for that one person who will bring that new beginning, that one person upon whom we can hang all our hope of redemption. Matthew gets it. And for this reason, he starts his gospel the way he does by elevating the better Adam, Jesus Christ, in the way that he links back to the first Adam in his genealogy. So Matthew's point is this. The, the reason behind him starting his book the way he does by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is he wants us to understand that with the arrival of Jesus, the wait is over. We don't have to look for this one who's going to come, who can actually restore what was lost back in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. We don't have to look any longer. The wait is over. We don't have to look for anyone else. Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. So in verses 1 through 17, when Matthew begins to teach us about Jesus, when he comes and says, listen, I'm going to write a whole book about this person. I'm going to give you 28 chapters that talk about the reality of this one person, of who he is, what he is like, what he taught, what he did, where he went, just what all was revolving around the epicenter of this singular person. His whole book is going to teach us all kinds of things about Jesus Christ but in the genealogy, he wants us to see at least two things from the very get-go about this one who is the better Adam who's going to be able to accomplish the redemption, the salvation, the grace that we actually need. Matthew says, I want you to know these two things. First, I want you to see that the genealogy of Jesus is a portrait of God's sovereign grace in the world. 
The genealogy of Jesus is a portrait of God's sovereign grace in the world. And he says, the second thing I want you to know about this Jesus is this, is that this Jesus is the king who brings God's grace to the nations. Not only is Jesus' history, his lineage, his descendants, not only as you step back and pan back and you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ, not only is it just riddled with the golden thread of God's sovereign grace and the way God is orchestrating history to bring about the birth of the Son of God incarnate in, in flesh here in this world, not only is that reality marking out the kingliness of this Jesus who's going to come, but what we need to know is as we zoom in on Jesus himself, is that we're going to see that Jesus is the king who brings grace to the nations. Jesus' life is marked by grace. His genealogy is going to talk about grace and point forward to the grace that he's going going to bring. And Jesus is the king who is able to fully accomplish, fully bring, fully, finally fulfill God's grace as he brings it to the nations. So first we can see this. The genealogy of Jesus is a portrait of God's sovereign grace in the world. The genealogy of Jesus Christ is a portrait of God's sovereign grace in the world, showing that the birth of Jesus was not some alternate plan B. Okay, The birth of Jesus was not some last-ditch effort made by God because he woke up one day realizing that his Old Testament plans were, were going to come to pass. So it's not like God was in heaven one day, he took too long of a nap, woke up and realized, you know, centuries upon centuries have gone by and it's like, oh no, like what are we going to do? This thing that I started back in Genesis, it's not the way it's supposed to be. I, I don't know how, how humanity just botched this up so much. What am I going to do? Well, I know, let's just take you, son of God, let's cloak you in flesh, let's send you to earth and see if we can just reroute this thing back back to the way that I desire for it to come about. That's, that's not the idea that's painted here anywhere in the Bible, but spe- specifically here in the genealogy in the first 17 verses. When you look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what you see is the golden thread of God's sovereign grace which weaves its way from Christ all the way back to Abraham. So you can see God's sovereign grace woven throughout the generations of God's Old Testament people. So if you look at verse 17, Matthew writes this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon was 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so you read that and you're like, well, you know, Pat Matthew on his back, he knows his history. But Matthew's trying to teach us something. Matthew divides the history of God's people up into three different periods. So the period from Abraham to David was that of the patriarchs. The period from David to the deportation of Babylon was that of the monarchy. And the period from the deportation of Babylon to Christ was that of captivity and exile. And in a matter of of 15 verses from verse 2 all the way down to verse 16, when you start looking at the names and the events that are wrapped up in there, what Matthew successfully does is takes all of the events from Genesis chapter 12 through Malachi chapter 4, and he shrinks them down into 15 verses. What he's doing is he's giving this gigantic forest overview of God's Old Testament history. 
in order to show us that God's grace was absolutely at work on behalf of his people through these three periods. So whether it's the period of the patriarchs, God was there orchestrating all things for the glory and the fame of his his son who was to come. Whether it was the period of the monarchs, God was there. The, The golden thread of God's sovereign grace was orchestrating all things for the glory and the fame of Christ. Whether it was the period of exile and captivity where Israel is just no longer really a force in the world and they've been weakened and they've been damaged by exile, you still see that God cares, God matters. He's working in the midst of his people and he's orchestrating all things for the glory and the fame of his son, Jesus Christ. Whether it was a time of wandering, enslavement, or deliverance, whether it was a time of ungodly kings leading their people into idolatry and exile, whether it was a time of frustration and the seeming absence of the Lord God, nothing was going to derail the advent of the Son of God coming into this world. In every generation, throughout every period, God's sovereignty was at work orchestrating the events of history so that the birth of Jesus Christ would absolutely come to pass. You see this here. Matthew is inserting this idea, and we see it in verse 17, just the way he says, just look at the three periods. These three periods that just define our history. You look at these three periods, what you see is God's fingerprint all over it. God isn't absent. He is fully present, sovereignly working for the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ. But not only that, we can also see God's sovereign grace in five unlikely women. So as you're reading through the genealogy, there are a couple of names that just jump out to you if you know your Old Testament stories. See, one of the unique features of the genealogy of Jesus is the way it includes women in the genealogy. Now, this may not seem strange to us in today's culture, but for Matthew's original audience, for a Jew to pick this up and read this, Matthew's gospel, his book that tells about the life of Jesus, was written to a Jewish audience to tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He is the king that we've been longing and waiting for. So for that original audience to pick up Matthew's gospel and begin to look at it and read it, they would know their Old Testament history, the history of their people. They would start reading this genealogy, and five names would be shocking to them as they read them originally after Matthew wrote his book. Genealogies were highly valued in Jewish culture because they were used as a way to trace Jewish lineage, which is extremely important in the culture of of Israel. And the way you traced Jewish lineage was always through the father. Genealogies are male-dominated. You always see this father gave birth to this son. He fathered this one. He fathered this one. He fathered this one. fathered this one. It's this kind of language that you just see through, through genealogies. But here in Jesus' genealogy, not only do you have the inclusion of men, but you have the inclusion of women. And not only that, do, do you just have the inclusion of Jewish men, but now you have the inclusion of non-Jewish women. And the first readers of the gospel would have been scandalized by this. It would have actually been an argument against the purity of his heredity. But Matthew is stepping back and saying, no, 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 no. What you don't do is read the way these these women are orchestrated into his genealogy as a dig against Jesus Christ. This is actually a sign of the way that God is sovereignly working in the world. He's working through these 
these women. So in verse 3, you bump into a woman named Tamar. Tamar was not Jewish. She was a Canaanite woman who committed adultery with one of Jacob's sons. His name was Judah. But by God's grace, she is folded into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, you bump into a woman named Rahab. Rahab was a professional prostitute. She was from the Gentile city of Jericho. But by God's grace, it goes the same with her. She is folded into the lineage of Jesus. Verse 5, again, you bump into a woman named Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile from the people of Moab, and the Moabites were to have nothing to do with God's people. Yet God in His grace leads Ruth to a man named Boaz, and she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Verse 6, you bump into this woman, the wife of Uriah. If you know your Old Testament stories again, that's Bathsheba. She was involved with King David in, in adultery. But God, by His grace, uses her to actually bring about one of the great kings of Israel. King Solomon is her little boy. And these women are introduced into the genealogy of Jesus to prepare us for the climax of them all, Mary, the mother of Jesus, down in verse 16. See, the mere fact that Matthew includes such women who played a very real part in Jesus' genealogy teaches us something about the grace of God and it only goes to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the friend of sinners who did not come to call the righteous but come to call sinners. And if He called sinners by grace to be His forefathers, then we should not be surprised when He calls sinners like you and me to be His descendants being folded into the family of God. See, these women are exceptional illustrations of God's sovereign grace. And before Jesus has even stepped on the scene in Matthew's book, what we see is that God is at work in the world preparing us for the gospel of grace that would be ushered in by this king. King Jesus isn't going to show up until verses 18 through 25. And so you're reading in this genealogy, these first 17 verses, and what you're seeing are these little snapshots of God's grace in people's individual lives. People like Mary, who are very righteous, but still very much in need of grace. And people who are very not righteous in their lives, who are also very much in need of grace. And when you read these first 17 verses, what you get is this ebb and flow of history. People good, people bad, people righteous in the way that they tried to worship God and people who were not worshiping God at all and everywhere in between. And what you see is this. God is a God of grace. The gospel of grace is going to be what defines this one who is to come, this one who is at the end, the caboose of this lineage, Jesus Christ himself. So when we think about Jesus and we see that his genealogy is a portrait of God's sovereign grace in the world, we also have to turn and notice that Jesus is the king who brings God's grace to the nation. So not only is it enough to step back and go, okay, so I see how God's grace was working in the lives of all these other people. Like, what does that actually have to do with Jesus? Like, specifically Jesus. Like, what is Jesus going to do? I know all of these hands of hand of God working in all these ways is pointing forward to something, but how does it actually go into effect with Christ? Matthew wants us to see this, that Jesus is the king who brings God's grace to the nation. So you go back and you read verse 1. Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all history. 
His name is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And he is the Christ, which means he is the anointed one. That's what Christ means. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title. Jesus who is the Christ. Jesus who is this one who bears this title. Jesus who is the anointed one. The Hebrew word for Christ is Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who will deliver God's people. He is the one who will set them free from their captivity to sin. But not only that, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So again, when you go back into the Old Testament, the promise to David was this, that his throne and his kingdom would be established forever before the Lord. And then you go back and you look at the promise that was made to Abraham. And the promise was this, that kings would come from him and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But when you look at the lives of David, when you look at the life of Abraham, and you look at the lives of all of their descendants, one thing becomes absolutely, obviously clear. David, Abraham, and their descendants could not fulfill the promises that were made to them. The promise was made to David. Someone's going to rule and reign on your throne forever. Point. You read the Old Testament and you see, but there comes a point in time where that's not true. You read that promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And you have to start asking, like, well, how is, how is that true? Like, I don't think Abraham fully brought about the fulfillment of, of that promise. None of the descendants brought about the fulfillment of these promises. So either we can conclude God is a liar and he cannot keep his promises, or we have to conclude that there's someone who is yet to come in the, in the chronology of the Bible who would be able to fulfill these promises. And that's what Matthew wants us to see here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So when Matthew writes that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, he is saying that Jesus is the one who can actually fulfill these promises. Not only is Jesus the better Adam, but Jesus is the better David, and he is the better Abraham. So this means a lot of things, but what it means for sure is that Jesus, as the son of David, he is the king of kings who will authoritatively bruise Satan's head and put sin to death by means of his death. Jesus is the king who will finally be able to bring the necessary blessing of God's grace to a world that is in desperate need of redemption. And as the son of Abraham, he is the rightful son who will usher in the grace of God to the families of the earth. So what you see is this, is that in verse 1, Matthew is giving us four names that talk about, four ideas that talk about Jesus. His name, Jesus, he is the Christ, he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. And what he's doing with these four phrases is basically taking all the Old Testament and he's cramming them into one verse at the very beginning. And what he's saying is this, we don't have to look anymore. This new Adam, this new beginning that we need, found him, Jesus. This Christ, this Messiah, this anointed figure who's going to be able to bring the completion of everything that we're longing and hoping for, the full restoration and redemption of everything that was lost in the garden, even found him. This Davidic figure who's going to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who can actually accomplish the forever reign of God, found him. This Abrahamic figure, 
who will genuinely be a blessing to the nations because he is going to be the one who's going to go to the cross, die for their sins, fully restoring them back to a right relationship with God the Father if they repent and believe and place their faith in this Abrahamic figure that is to come. Found him. You don't have to look anymore. The king is here. You've missed him the first time. He's, he's dead. You've crucified him. But let me write. Let me show you. Let me teach. Let me tell you about all the ways that Jesus who is the Christ, he is the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. He is the king who will bring the grace of God to the nations, to the world, to you and me, who are so desperately, so stinking desperately in need of God's grace. I like the way John MacArthur sums it up. He says this, Jesus was sent by a God of grace to be a king of grace. He would not be a king of law and of iron force, but a king of grace. His royal credentials testify of royal grace. And the people he chose to be his ancestors reveal the wonder of grace, and it gives hope to sinners. See, this is the good news of Christmas. This is is exactly what we celebrate in this season, this Advent season, and this is the good news of what we celebrate in every season, that with the first advent, with the first arrival, with the first coming of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate is grace. The king of grace is with us. The son of David has authoritatively crushed Satan's dark kingdom, reversing the curse and making all things new. The Savior has come. The son of Abraham has come who can actually bless sinners with the grace of God. In Jesus, we have the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word who is full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace upon grace. See, fundamentally, the message of Christmas is not about something that we do. It's not about something that we must earn, but what God has done in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The message of Christmas is an announcement that life with God is available now through Jesus, our ruling and reigning King of grace. Let's pray. God, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. My hope is this is that as we just step back and look at the reality of Christ through His genealogy, what we would see is grace. That as we walk out these doors and go on our way into a week that is just surely going to be hectic and busy, filled with family and relationships, miscommunication and some awkwardness and just busyness and running around. Father, I pray that in those moments, what you would do is cause our mind's eye to drift back to the reality of the one that we worship during this time, that when this little baby came into this world, that he was not just merely another man, but he was the God-man. And when the God-man cloaked in flesh came into this world, what he did was he ushered in a new beginning. And with this new beginning, he brought hope, the hope of salvation. For he would be the one, the king, who would bring the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, everything funneling down to him 
He is the exalted one. He is the worthy one. He is the one to be worshipped. Why? Because he is the king who brings the necessary grace to the lost people of the world. God, that is Christmas. That is the good news. And that is what we celebrate. May that be on the forefront of our minds as we go about this week, loving you and worshipping you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.